0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon.
1: Today's reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since those things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us and went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, "Oh, how foolish you are! And how slow of heart to believe all that, prof- all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all these scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead of them as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, He took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made to known, to, known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment for silent reflection.
0: Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we hear this ancient story of a couple walking down the road in the midst of disappointment, walking down the road in the midst of anxiety and confusion and uncertainty about the future. As we come to this very moment, bringing our own stories of uncertainty and confusion, of anxiety. We also bring before you our experiences of hope and joy and longing. We come to this moment feeling connected, known and loved. We come to this moment feeling alone and isolated, betrayed or angry, hopeful and depressed. Believing and skeptical. However we come to this moment, help us to see no matter how different we are from one another, we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, you see us and you know us in all our complexities. And your response to us in all our beauty and our brokenness is not to run from us, not to crush us, but to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now we pray, that as you did for that couple on that road to Emmaus, that you would break through and open our eyes to your grace, open our hearts to your presence, open our minds to your truth and our lives to your love. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed and this world would be renewed. We pray all those things, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, it was a week ago from today that I was looking forward to the lunar eclipse, the blood moon lunar eclipse. Was anybody else looking forward to the lunar eclipse last Sunday? And so I was getting ready for what would have been, you know, the beginning of it at 830. I had snacks ready and made sure the binoculars were clean and all that stuff. And then it was just cloud cover, just cloud cover. And I went out at 8.40 and 8.50 and 9 o'clock and 9.15. And it was the same. I kept hoping there would be something different. There was nothing different. Major disappointment. Major disappointment. And then, you know, it kind of helped a little bit to see the social media response where, you know, someone would post the sky every night above my house. It's a totally clear sky. And then the sky anytime there's an, you know, astronomical special event and it's just completely cloudy, right? Disappointment. There was something to see there, and it still happened, that's the thing, is it was still taking place above the clouds, we just couldn't see it. There was something to see, and I prepared and couldn't see it. Here we have this passage of two supposed friends of Jesus who are walking on the road with him after his crucifixion. He's right in front of them, and they can't see him. How do you relate to this story? This is a story that intersects with any of the ways that you desire to experience God or the divine or the spiritual in your life. Even if you say, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. You desire for God, for the spiritual, for the divine, to break through and do something. And you're not seeing it. Maybe you're remembering a time where God seemed so close and active in your life. And now it seems like nothing but cloud cover. And you're wondering if you'll ever see any of this light, of this beauty, of this hope ever again. And I know some of you, because this is a church that welcomes all of our friends and always tries to remember what it's like not to believe, some of you are thinking there's nothing there to see at all anyways. I would be shocked, I'd be surprised if there actually is a God on the other side of that cloud cover. And then that gets compounded when you look at the world out there with all its glory and its beauty, with all its tragedy and its war, with its political polarization, with its racial violence, with economic uncertainty. And then you look in the mirror and you think things are not the way they're supposed to be. And no matter how much you try to run from it or control it or medicate it or put a facade out there that you're doing just fine because if you can't at least be successful, at least look successful, and it is not working. This is a passage for confused and anxious people. This is a passage for people. You know, you know what you need to access this passage? All you need... Need, And it begins by asking a diagnostic question. What are you focusing on life, in life right now? What has captured your attention? And then the encouragement and the challenge is, it is possible that God is closer to you than the air you breathe. As close to you as a friend walking down the windy dirt road, and it's simply that you just don't recognize them. One philosopher says, the task of life is to become aware. But in our particular society, we live much of life sleepwalking. There's action, there's motion. You show up for the things you need to show up for, you do them, and yet there's no focus, there's no attention, there's no presence. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. So this passage comes and says, what are you focusing on? What are you paying attention to? What brings you hope in the midst of all the uncertainty of life? Or as my, one of my psychology and pastoral counseling professors used to have on his outgoing message, on his voicemail, if you called him, his voicemail would say, at the beep, please answer these two questions. Who are you? and what do you want? Then he said, "Unless you think I'm being rude, let me remind you, most people go through life without answering these two questions. Who are you, and what do you want? I mean, that's good, that's good therapy right there on voicemail. So, who are you, and what do you want? See, we miss a lot in life. And it's easy to miss the presence of the living, resurrected Christ in your midst. And so let's buckle up and get into this passage as we just consider how to miss God in your midst, how to find God, and how to follow him. First, how to miss him. It's easy. You just don't see him. See, here are these two friends, and this is on the first day of the week. This is the first Easter. So this this is a long, almost slowed down, real time. We're in the sixth week of Easter right now, and every week we're looking at stories of Jesus' resurrection appearance to his friends. This would have happened within the first 16 hours of the garden narratives, the empty tomb, the women shocked at the tomb that go tell the disciples. And we come across Cleopas and the companion walking to Emmaus. And they're walking down, and they're literally walking away from the story of the resurrection. And I don't blame them. They had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We'll get into all that. They had hoped that he was not only a bunch of great teachings and wonderful examples, but he might actually be the Messiah, the anointed one, the true king that everybody was on the the tips of their toes waiting for. They hoped it would be him. It looked good. The campaign was going well. Things were on a positive trajectory. And then it came to a crashing halt and he was killed publicly. And it was over. And they're walking away. I do not blame them. Now, interesting note. Scholars to this day do not know exactly where Emmaus is. There are a few hypotheses, but no one's exactly sure where the town of Emmaus is. And No one is exactly sure who Cleopas is at this point either. Back then they would have known, otherwise they wouldn't have named him. But today scholars aren't exactly sure who Cleopas was. In other words, Cleopas walking to Emmaus could be anyone walking to anywhere. It's a picture of you and me when we face the unavoidable part of the human experience that includes pain suffering, and disappointment. And it's unavoidable. We go to Emmaus. Theologian Frederick Beekner wrote in his book, The Magnificent Defeat, Emmaus is where we go when life gets to be too much for us. It's the place we go in order to escape. A bar, a movie, whatever it is, we throw up our hands and say, let the whole thing go Hang." it makes no difference anyway. Emmaus may be buying a new suit or a new car or smoking more cigarettes than you really want or reading a second-rate novel or even writing one. Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget that the world holds nothing sacred, that even the wisest and bravest and loveliest decay and die. That even the noblest ideas that men and women ever had, ideas about love and freedom and justice, have always, in time, been twisted out of shape by selfish men for selfish ends. Emmaus is that place we go when we want to throw up our hands and say, forget it all anyways, I know that it was just a fraud. The question is, what are you walking away from? And what are you walking toward? I can identify and empathize with these two walking away as they say, we thought he was the one, and their hopes were dashed. Now, I think their hopes were dashed for two reasons. On one hand, there's a rational disappointment. Just rational. Use your mind. Use the logic. We thought he was the one. He was killed in front of us. Dead people don't redeem the world. He's not the one. I get it. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around a crucified Savior. They say, look, we're using our minds here. I don't believe this stuff. And it's interesting that Luke anticipates not only their mindset, but the modern, rational, skeptical mindset that says, I need to use my head here. Give me some reasons to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And so Luke, in this passage, names names, right? Cleopas. You can go and ask Cleopas. Um, later on in the Gospel of John, actually earlier in the narrative in the Gospel of John, on the night Jesus was betrayed, it says one of the disciples cut off the high priest's ear, ear in the midst of this arrest of Jesus, and the high priest's servant's name was Malchus. In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is straining under the weight of the cross and being beaten down under excruciating pain, by the way, side note, the word excruciating was a word that was invented in Latin to describe the kind of pain that comes from being crucified, excruciating, out of the cross type of pain. Under the excruciating pain, Jesus falls several times and it says, a man named Simon from Cyrene came, the father of Alexander and Rufus. He names names. In each case, what are they doing? They're citing their footnotes. They're saying, we know that these things are difficult to believe, so go ask Cleopas. Go ask Malchus. Malchus will be easy to find. He'll be the one with the different looking ear because it was cut off. Go and find Alexander. Go and find Alexander and Rufus. Ask them these things. And if you went and asked them what happened, they would all say, he was risen from the dead. And that's what transformed the world. Which means that if you're investigating Christianity and wondering if you can believe these things, you don't start with, what will following Jesus do to my finances? What will following Jesus do to my career? What will following Jesus do to the way that I use my body and my sexuality? You don't start with those things. Those are important questions, but they're not the starting place. You start with, did he rise from the dead or not? Because if he didn't, Who cares what he says about your finances, or your body, or your relationships, or your career? But if he did, it changes everything. And so you start with the resurrection. I would love to have that conversation with you as we explore the resurrection in our community groups, in small groups, in one-on-one conversations. If there's any part of you right now that's thinking that would be intriguing or interesting or challenging, Please get a hold of me today. Drop me a line through the church's website. Hit the contact button. I want to go deeper into these things with you as we go together as a church. So they had rational reasons to be disappointed. But they also had emotional reasons to be disappointed. You know, we're both head and heart. We are rational and emotional beings. You cut one out, you're not fully human. To be human means to have a rational and emotional experience in this world. And they had emotional reasons. We thought he would be the one to redeem Israel, but we were wrong. They had a list of conditions that Jesus needed to complete in order to be the Messiah, in order to be the Savior. We needed him to save us militarily from the Roman occupation. We needed him to lead us politically against a king and a crown and a governor that are squashing us, and he didn't. Now, those might not be your conditions and mine, but let's be honest. We do have conditions. God, if you will just give me X, then I will trust you. If you will just give me a career, if you will just help me finish my education, if you would just give me the amount of money that I need, if you would just give me the right partner or spouse or health, then I'll trust you and I'll follow you. And he comes to you and says, don't you understand? When you have a framework that says, God, if you will do X, then I will trust you, you are not dealing with the resurrected, risen Christ. And to truly trust him is to get to a place, it's a journey, it's a process, but to get to a place where you can say, whether or not I get X, I need you. Friends, when we get to that place, you will live a life that is stable, secure, and resilient, no matter the circumstances. Conversely, when I say to God, if you do X, then I will trust and follow, I'm not actually dealing with God, I'm trying to get X and have God fill in whatever I need. Right? That's a task rabbit, that's an errand boy, that's, that's, um, that's an assistant that you buzz into your office when you need a little bit of help, but that's not God. We come before God with conditions. But we also just come before God with hopes. I mean, it's a good thing to be a person of hope, a person with a vision for the future, a hope for the future. My, one of my working definitions is hope is the belief that tomorrow can be better than today. When you can't believe or trust that, you begin to lose hope. They say, we had hoped he was the one. Are you aware of the things that you're hoping for? Are you aware of the ways that they are setting the course for your life? Now, having hopes is a good thing, as I said. But when we make them the non-negotiable conditions for us trusting and following God, they begin to own us. What promises freedom ends up leading to slavery for us. What promises to be the wide and open path ends up being constricting. And we can miss the resurrection in the midst of our presence. Here's what's intriguing here. There's this ironic aspect going on in verse 21. They say, we had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. And like I said, that word redeem, it has all of these really important implications. To redeem is to set someone free from slavery. These are the Jewish people, the Israelites, the people of God being enslaved and attacked and surrounded by the Roman Empire. And they're saying, we thought he would be the one to redeem us from this. We thought he was going to be a military leader that would crush our enemies. We thought he would be a newer, better, bigger version of Caesar that would give order to our world. They had expectations that the Messiah would redeem. Now here's the irony. History is full of stories of someone who would come and redeem a weaker empire from a stronger one a weaker people from a predatory one. And because of the sin sickness in the human heart, it doesn't take long until the people who used to be the underdog amass power, might, resources, weapons, and they begin to take over the people next to them. Continuing in this cycle of world history that goes around and around, Violence and injustice, uprising and rebellion, rising political power, injustice again, and on it goes. And so sure, Jesus could have come as a military power to crush the enemy, as a political Caesar to govern everything, and it wouldn't be long until the people took up arms and amassed the empire once again, using the means that the world seems to find most attractive, violence, coercion, and might. Instead, Jesus comes, the one who would redeem the world, and he redeems it by taking all of that pain and violence and injustice upon himself on the cross. All the things that we do and all the things that have been done to us, focusing like a laser on the cross, when religious and political violence and injustice focus on his body as he's crucified. And three days later in his resurrection shows that death will not have the final word. Injustice does not have the final word. He did, that's the the great irony. He did redeem the world, but not in a way the world would expect. You see this on the cross as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Taking pain and violence and recycling it, into forgiveness. That's a redemption the world needs so deeply and could never expect or envision. And so they missed it. It's, this is all point one. Point two will go much quicker, I promise. It's easy to miss him because you don't expect him. He could be closer to you right now than you ever imagined. And we miss him. But how do you find him? Here's the punchline. This is not a story about two people finding God. It's not. This is a story about God finding you. In the midst of all your wandering, in the midst of all you're getting it wrong and getting lost, I love uh, Mark Twain said, "The most dangerous things in the world ain't the things you don't know; it's the things you're sure you know that just ain't so." Right? Like, so it's one thing to be lost and know it; it's a whole other thing to be lost and be sure that you're on the right path. And it's there where he comes after you in love. These two are walking away from the story. Jesus himself comes near them. And as he comes near them, what do they give him? They don't give him, Jesus, thank you for showing up. We missed you. Oh, my gosh, now I believe. Now I trust. Now I have hope. Now I can face the world. No, what do they give him? Questions, doubts, and fearful abandoning talk. (laughs) And what does he do? He walks with them. In the midst of their questions, in the midst of your fear, he walks with you. He doesn't say, good riddance, or you're not worthy, or you should have gotten it by now, or I'm sorry. You know, it is true that I'm gracious. It is true that I'm forgiving. It is true that I'm merciful. But good Lord, even I have some limits. You've done too much. He's inexhaustible. He doesn't get tired of you. His ability to forgive is always grander than your ability to wander. And so he walks with them. I want you to see Jesus pursuing you in this way. What if it's true that the million mile gap is not you finding God this morning, but you saying, God, if you are actually who the scriptures say you are, Jesus, if you really are the one to redeem the world, I'm open. I'm open. Do with me what you will. I trust you. What would it be like if you prayed that prayer today? He pursues you. He finds you. And also note that the process of experiencing the risen Jesus is extraordinarily ordinary. There's no burning bush. There's no blinding light. There's a bunch of weary, tired companions walking on a dusty road in the middle of the heat of the day, coming towards sunset. That's what it looks like. And how does Jesus do it? It says on one hand he opens the scriptures, on the other side he opens the table. Let's think about this for a second. He opens the scriptures to these people who have already supposedly heard all the stories. Okay? He didn't go to them, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things that were said about him. Okay? He didn't go to them and begin with, like, in the beginning, and there was the word, and, and there was this guy named Moses, and there was slave. They knew the story. They were Israelites. They already knew it all. But they didn't know it all. They, had, they could rehearse it. They could write a poem about it. They could write a play about it. But it hadn't melted their heart yet. You see, there's two ways of reading scripture. The first one is to read it like Aesop's Fables, where the, the, the Bible, I've heard, I don't know if you've heard it, B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Bible, right? The Bible is a list of ways to behave properly and act so that God will love you and accept you. I mean, that's a little overly caricaturized, and yet some people base their lives on that caricature. And in that case, here's what happens. Some of you have run from communities like that. In that case, you have David and Goliath, and the moral is, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And when you have big, giant enemies, don't worry, just just go for it, grab some stones, pull up your boots by the bootstraps, and jump in and vanquish your enemies. Friends, reading the Bible that way will give you courage for a little while, and then you will be crushed. You will either be crushed because on one hand, it will work for you for a while, And you will begin to disdain people for whom it's not working. Because they're not believing right. They're not trying hard enough. They're doing it wrong. So it will make you a snob. An unfun person to be around. Or you will feel like you never measure up. But that's not the way Jesus says to read scripture. He says, the other way to read it is actually this. All of it is about me. You read David and Goliath. David... ...was the smallest of all of his brothers, the weakest of all of his brothers, and yet he is the one who vanquished the terror. It's a picture of Jesus, the truer David, who will come in his weakness on the cross and vanquish the greatest enemies of all, sin and death. David goes and fights against Goliath on behalf of all of his people, and his victory, his wisdom, his justice is imputed to all of Israel... When David wins, Israel's victorious. Jesus says, when I conquer death on the cross and you're identified with me, that victory is yours as well. All of it points to Jesus. In the first song we sang today, I call on the God of Moses who opened up the oceans, who brings us from slavery to freedom. He says, don't you know the story of Moses is the story of me? I took you from slavery into freedom of new life. He says, it's all about me. The Old Testament was a finger pointing to who Jesus is. As one theologian, Brian Zond, says something like, the Old Testament, Moses was like the moon, and the prophets were like the stars, and you can see by night because of the moon and the stars. You can navigate with them. But now, Jesus, the Son of God, is like the light of the sun, and we walk in daylight. And you look at him, and you see who God truly is. Don't you know it's all about me? So, one very practical question is Do you have a healthy diet of understanding Jesus through the scriptures? Because if you don't, you're missing out. And what, I'll just tell you one of the challenges for me, one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is that I get paid to read the Bible. Like, I get paid to do Bible studies. That's a dangerous place to be, actually. Because I can just treat my work as a duty and never let it transform my heart. And so just simply I'll share with you one of my practices is I always try to have something going with Jesus in scripture and prayer that has nothing to do with my external ministry or my production. Just because I want to know him better. Do you have anything going in your life like that? Sunday morning, pillar. Community group, pillar. I also want to be a church that's equipped to have many meals throughout the week so that you can explore him in scripture. So he opens up the scriptures and then he opens up this meal. It's in this meal as it says, the bread is taken and blessed and broken and given, that their eyes are open. See, you are not merely a brain on a stick. You are an embodied human being with taste buds with hungers, with appetites. And so it doesn't just say consider that the Lord is good, it says taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants to renew everything. And so as you come to this table today, considering the brokenness of this world right now, the aspects of our country and our world of violence and war, of racism and heartbreak that seem overwhelming, let that drive you to this table To be someone who is fed and nourished by this bread that is taken and blessed and broken and given. And then, let it propel you to be someone who's taken and blessed, broken and given on behalf of this world. Because eventually, that's what happens to these people. A few quick things. What are the steps? First, they say, stay with us. Maybe that's your first step. Jesus, stay with me. I'll stay with you. Abide with me. I want to be around you. But then there's a whole new direction. Because they started moving away from Jerusalem toward Emmaus, and by the end of the story, they're going back. And not only are they changing their direction, which is, by the way, we're, by the, way the biblical word repent, metanoia, to change your mind, to change your way of thinking, to change your direction. They go in a new direction, and they do it with new courage. Because remember, the crescendo of the story is, it was getting dark. Stay with us. Meaning the roads are not the place you want to be right now. There are thieves and brigands and bandits in danger. As soon as they realize they're in the presence of the resurrected Christ, none of that terrifies them anymore. And they're back out on the road. But not only are they back out on the road, they're on the road with a new story to tell. A new hope. A new hope that does not diminish the cares and worries of this world. But a new hope of a bigger story of resurrection in which all those cares and worries take place. They're experiencing here what Jesus said, what he promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Friends, as we walk on that road together, whatever your particular Emmaus moment is, and there are many of them, may we be a people whose eyes can recognize the risen Christ. May we be a people who can say, stay with us and change our direction to be agents of healing and renewal in this world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that this would be the tone and the tenor, the direction of our lives. We are a wandering people. And the good news is, That it's not up to our ability to find you. Because we've already proven ourselves woefully incompetent in that endeavor. The good news is, you are omnipotent to find us. And you not only can do it, but you desire to do it. You delight to find us as we wander on the road. And so we pray now that you would be doing just that. And that you'd give us the courage to say, stay with us. The courage to go a new direction down the road. The courage to receive not only your resurrection renewal, but then to be agents of it wherever we go. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.